This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. When you're a little kid, you have these really actually fond memories of this person that you later find out wasn't just dangerous, but was actually a serial killer. It makes you really have the need to kind of deconstruct those memories. And even there were moments where I was like, what could possibly be wrong with me that I didn't know who he was as a little kid? I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Most of us have heard the story of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. But this is a new version of that story. There was a family who lived next door to him for decades, a family that had no idea he was secretly building bombs in his cabin. Jamie Gehring is the author of the book Madman in the Woods. She tells me about what it was like to live right next door to the Unabomber. So let's start with really the beginning. So... Ted and it's his brother, right, David, who have the land? Yes. So they get the land from your grandfather in 1971. And you were born shortly thereafter, I'm assuming? Yes, I was born in 1980. Okay. So what is life like for Ted and David as they've built this cabin and they're in rural Montana? I don't know actually much about his background. Is he from a rural area? So... Ted had always dreamt of fleeing society and kind of living this particular lifestyle in the woods. His parents really did prioritize spending time together as a family. They went camping together. Very fond memories were formed as a family unit in the woods. And it definitely played a very large part in both David and Ted's development and how they were raised. But Ted did not live in that way. He was 
right before Montana, he was a professor at Berkeley. And, you know, when I started to do the research, I discovered that even when, you know, Ted was deciding to go to Montana, he had already had his plan in place for the destruction of the technological society. And so it was all part of his plan to move out to this area where he could conduct these acts. Ted was just staying with his brother David in Great Falls after he had left his job as a professor. And he actually didn't have long-term plans to stay in Montana specifically. But he saw this property come up and he asked for his brother's help in purchasing it. And actually, David never lived there with him. He visited a few times in the early years. But after that, it was only Ted out there. What is your father's first interaction with Ted? Because I'm assuming that memory was much fresher for him than it was for you. Did your dad frame this as weird guy, fine neighbor, nothing really happened until X happened? And then that seemed to be a trigger for something. You know, there were years of my dad thinking that Kaczynski was eccentric, strange, but a pretty good guy. My mother and my father had Ted over for dinner. Hmm. They played cards together. He was at one point employed by my father at the mill. There were plenty of friendly, neighborly interactions for years. In addition, Ted actually helped with the construction of our family's cabin. Hmm. There was definitely a positive relationship between my father and Ted until they started having disagreements. And I'm sure the mill contributed to that, the noise of the sawmill. And there was like some exploratory mining that had happened on a very, very small scale And there were some outsiders that were around Ted's property. And for obvious reasons now, that really bothered him. And there were multiple pretty scary interactions, actually, between my dad and Ted. And so it was really just a progression over the years, slowly, until it had really completely deteriorated right before Ted's arrest. Well, let's separate you from your dad. We keep saying eccentric, which means many different things to different cultures. What's eccentric in one culture is not in another. In your teenage mind or even younger, what was eccentric specifically to you about Ted Kaczynski? There were multiple things, one being the way in which he lived. Now, in rural Montana, again, the town of Lincoln, about a thousand residents one blinking stoplight, one gas station. The school is kindergarten through high school. I mean, you can it's a tiny place. And there were plenty of people who lived off-grid lifestyles. And so that by itself wasn't strange in the type of environment that we were in. But Ted's behavior, he always seemed like He was kind of in a hurry, which as even a little kid, when he would come over and he would ask me, you know, what time it was, what day it was, he always seemed like there was like something he really had to get done. And I would just think like, what could he possibly have to do? He's a hermit. He's living alone. Like, what could he possibly need to get to? And of course, now 
all of that makes so much more sense. So it was so many different things. The way that he spoke, the way that he looked. I mean, his his hair was all over the place. His eyes, especially as the years went on, his eyes were just so wide. And as you can imagine, especially a person living that way after a really tough winter, his eyes were almost kind of like caved in a little bit underneath. There was soot on his face, dirt on his hands, under his fingernails. I mean, obviously he was living off grid and in the wilds, but there was just something additionally different about him. I think that everyone, you know, views people differently. They all have a different point of view. And you pick up on qualities that someone has. What makes you uncomfortable might not have made your father uncomfortable. I'm wondering what your mom's point of view of all of this was. Did she pick up on something totally differently than you did or your dad did? My mom knew Ted in the early days. So when I say that, it's like late 70s, early 80s. My mom and father got a divorce and she moved away. But her initial interactions with Ted were, you know, she she thought he was, yes, he's a little different. He lives this off-grid lifestyle, but he just seemed really shy. Hmm. And he was always really polite and kind to my mom. There's a moment in the book that I write about when he brought me a gift as a baby. He hand-carved a cup and brought it over. And my mom was at home by herself with me. And she was startled because she didn't know who this person was. They hadn't met prior to this. She had only kind of heard about him. And she did have a pretty fearful response because she was alone. And in her words, you know, there wasn't anybody close enough to hear her scream. Mm -hmm. And so just her saying that so many years later, obviously there was something that she did pick up on. But overall, her experience with him, like I said, she just thought he was polite and a, a shy person. Now, my stepmother who lived next to Ted for years, they had a much different relationship. And of course, Ted changed as the years went on. And so it makes sense that their relationship was also different. But my stepmother and mother were different personalities as well. And so that obviously played into it. But she had much more red flags <laughs> that she she noticed. And there were definitely more heated interactions between the two of them. What were those interactions over? What could your stepmother have done? Is it over the sawmill? Is that what a lot of this was? You know, it was very early on. I already mentioned that Ted would come over and ask what time it was and what day it was. Hmm. And it started to really bother my stepmother because she had moved from the city and she was now living in this country environment and him coming to the house so frequently, she felt like she was being watched and she felt just really uneasy around him. And, you know, she kind of blew up at him and basically told him to go buy himself an effing watch oh. because she was sick and tired of him coming over. And so, and that was still pretty early on in the 80s that that happened. 
And so that definitely didn't get them started on the right foot. And as she says, now knowing that he was the Unabomber, that's a pretty scary thing that she did. I'm sure nobody could blame her to a certain extent because that fear, I I grew up in the country and it still was a little terrifying for me sometimes just because you're out there, no one's there, it's dark, it's quiet. Yes, and, you know, there was a lock on our door, but it was just like one of those little hooks and it was never locked. I mean, we never locked our doors. Yeah, we didn't either. It was just, yeah, it was just the way that we grew up. Yeah. So there's three timelines happening to me here, right? One is your age and what you're going through. One is when Ted first does something with a bomb. And then what is your dad's relationship or your family's relationship with him? So what are all those three things? If you're intersecting all three, when does that happen? And what is the event that starts Ted down this road of building bombs next door to you all? In 1971, when Ted decided to buy the property with his brother in Lincoln, Montana, he had a plan of attack and he knew that he was going to be targeting people. He knew that he needed to learn how to build bombs and deliver bombs. And it was in 1978 when his first bomb was sent. You know, I wasn't born yet. I was born in 1980, but my father remembers the national news of that first bomb. Hmm. And very specifically, I mean, there was multiple attacks after that. But then the bombing of American Airlines Flight 444 left a very large mark on my own dad because he was a pilot Hmm. and it really, I mean, it was terrifying to a nation, but it touched him, I think, even deeper because of that. But he remembers reading the news and thinking, oh, that's also just so far from us in this tiny little town. And, you know, even the FBI, when Max Knoll first got his initial look at Ted Kaczynski before the arrest, in his mind, in no way could that ever have been the Unabomber. Hmm. Because here he is, completely disheveled, emaciated, living in this tiny little cabin, no running water, no electricity, and still being able to hide from the FBI from 1978 until 1996 when he was arrested. I think my dad was in shock when the FBI finally came to him. And was just like, absolutely not. There is no way that that hermit could be the Unabomber. Hmm. And then, you know, as Max told him more, it made sense. And my father was on board. But in no part of his mind could Ted Kaczynski have committed those crimes. Can you set up the first bombing, 1978? You were two years away from being born. What happened and why did it happen? Why this person? That was the difficulty in catching the Unabomber. One was that he was using pieces of metal and wood that he was scavenging much from my father's old cars and sawmill, just places he would find in the valley, the dump, for instance. And so the materials he was using were untraceable. But then his victims, they were universities. They were businessmen. There was an airplane flight. There was a geneticist. 
it just didn't make any sense who this person was and why they were targeting these different people. And so to be a a student or a professor during this time and to see the different targets, I suppose, it had to be so terrifying. And then it shifted to an airplane and then it shifted again to, you know, a computer store. And so it was almost just like the nation was held captive waiting for the next attack and who it was going to be. So let's just go over nuts and bolts of what happens here. He starts in 1978, and he's shipping these bombs to different places or different people. Is that right? They're small. How big are we talking about? A shoebox? So, yes. Basically, they're in boxes, and they're not very large boxes. All of them are a little bit different. But he's actually getting on a bus with these bombs and getting very close to the site. And many of them he actually brings and leaves like in a parking lot, for instance, to be discovered by his victim, by his intended victims. And so they were all very methodical, all very deliberate. And in reading his crime journals, I mean, there were thousands of pages that I was able to to read and research while writing this book because he documented everything. He documented anything from what he ate that day, where he hiked, what he was hunting, to his crimes. And he would express how disappointed he was if a bomb only maimed somebody instead of, you know, obviously he was intending to murder these people. What in his mind was his intention? I mean, I know we talk broadly about destroying the technology and the infrastructure and really exposing how industrialization has destroyed our country and our wilderness. What is his big theme with all of this? It's a very good question, and it's still not entirely clear. I mean, he definitely writes of wanting to destroy the technological society. And it's within any means necessary to him, which of course he uses violence and murder to express his ideals. So you read those things that he's stating. And then in his journals, he talks about how he's not doing these acts of violence, performing these acts of violence for the next generation or for any sort of altruism. He's happy to litter in the wilderness if he wants to. I mean, so it's just, it's like it's two different people. And the one resounding theme that I could really determine through all of his writings and especially his journal entries was it was just, he was so motivated by revenge and anger. And it's hard to say in any person that you're trying to study where that really comes from, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're that person, you know, and I, of course, have my opinions on how that foundation was started with him, but only he could really say where that anger and that need for revenge has come from. Which of the incidents that happen is the one you connect with the most? Because maybe it happens at a time in your life when you can remember, holy moly, I cannot believe I was doing this or I had just seen him and this is now on the news. What is the strongest recollection you have from one of these incidents? 
So there are a few that really did touch me because I, I had remembered seeing them in the news. But I think the one that had the largest impact on me was the death of Thomas Moser, the advertising executive. It was in 1994. It was not too far before his arrest. I was about 13, almost 14, I think, at the time. And I do remember seeing it on the news. And there were so many interviews done, I think, after the fact when Ted was arrested. And I remember David Kaczynski's wife, Linda, who was a big reason that Ted Kaczynski was arrested, by the way. Mm -hmm. She was recounting what really pushed them to go to the FBI. And that particular murder was so impactful to her because there was a toddler in the next room mm -hmm. and they had, you know, just had a tea party together. And I mean, it was just the whole narrative of that family. And then the wake of that violence and that murder was just something that she couldn't shake because she had this feeling about him. And then when the manifesto came out, it was very clear to her that he was a very likely suspect. Let's go back to your family and their relationship with Ted. You say two things in the book that I thought were really interesting about interactions that were sort of indirect. One was that you could hear him in the yard, getting the scrap metal, collecting things that you had just mentioned that were potentially used in some of these bombs. And the second is, is that he sabotaged at one point your family's sawmill. So let's talk about the disintegrating relationship between your dad, Butch, and Ted. I know it was, it sounds like a thousand little cuts, but it sounds like things were ramping up as he was ramping up. Is that right? Yes, definitely. You know, and as... As the years went on, I think Ted became much more comfortable. And as he was getting away with crimes, I feel like he felt more powerful as well. Because I even look at his local acts of sabotage, like you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. He sabotaged my father's sawmill. And what he had at stake on a national level and the crimes that he was committing... It is shocking that he would put himself in that danger mm -hmm. by sabotaging so close to home. And my father, Samuel, wasn't the only one that was affected. There was another neighbor that was a bit further away from us that Ted actually broke into their home while they were away with an axe, Wow! sliced their cupboards, poured bleach on the carpets. He even defecated in the house. Wow. And again, right in his backyard, he's doing these things. It's hard to put words to now because I feel like it really just came back to, one, his, his ego and his sense of power. And then also, he couldn't extinguish, like I said, he couldn't extinguish that rage. And now it was coming out so close to home because he just couldn't control it. Before we really talk about the timeline again, you've sort of touched on guilt. I wonder when this book came out, 
Did you get any blowback from anybody saying, how could you not know this? Did you ever get any sort of trolling because your family was right there and how could you guys not see? I could just see people saying that to you. So I, unfortunately, am in a position where there's definitely attacks from all angles. There's attacks for, yes, not knowing. I was 16 when Ted Kaczynski was arrested. I mean, there was really no way for me to personally know that he was the Unabomber. If he could hide from the FBI that long, I think he could keep it as his crimes a secret from a teenager. But, you know, there is that. And I definitely, I had my own feelings of guilt, well, especially while writing this being an adult, because yes, we did live very close to him. Mm-hmm. And what was there a way we could have known? Were there signs that we missed? Would we do things differently? I mean, I went through all of those emotions for sure. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then there's the people that think that I am, I guess, too sensitive to Ted Kaczynski's story and to understanding of what created him. And so I I definitely get attacks for that. And then there's the other side of like the very much pro pro Ted Kaczynski camp that doesn't like the book for for obvious reasons as well. So <laughs> I get it all around. Yeah. There's a pro Ted Kaczynski camp. Is this the these are the people who idolize him, right? I've read a lot about that. Yes. And, you know, as I've said in my book, there are things that Ted Kaczynski says that are like there's moments of brilliance. He was a genius. There's no disputing that. But this man he killed people. He maimed people. And so no matter how you feel about his ideas, there's no excusing his violence and his attacks. So when does your dad become involved? Because they have an acrimonious relationship as the years go on. You're a teenager. When does the FBI, first of all, clue in to Ted? And then how and when do they approach Butch about all of this? After the manifesto was published, there was definitely a, a very large process that, you know, went into the FBI analyzing that. And, you know, even David Kaczynski and Linda, they were also analyzing it in their own ways, trying to determine if they wanted to go to the FBI. They hired outside counsel. Hmm. So there was a lot going on behind the scenes once that manifesto was published. And, you know, after the FBI was involved, they really started doing all of their due diligence and seeing, you know, who they could trust, who they could contact, who they could bring into the fold to make this investigation a success. They were kind of doing recon in Lincoln, Montana, as, you know, still pretty undercover, trying to determine what the community was like, what the terrain even looked like. And it was just a couple months prior to Ted's arrest that Max Knoll went to my father. And, you know, they were still trying to kind of feel each other out in that initial meeting because this is an incredibly high-profile case. This is a 17-year-long investigation. And, of course, Max is wanting to keep things pretty close and not divulge too much information. But he also knows that there's a chance that with my dad having such history there and being so close to Ted, that he might need him on the investigation. And so, you know, once once they kind of had their first interaction and felt, felt one another out, 
they really did become very close. And and Max knew that he could trust my dad. And, you know, initially it was Max telling him. First, he said that they were... Uh, looking into him, looking into Ted Kaczynski for writing some threatening letters. Hmm. You know, my dad, I think he could kind of comprehend that. I mean, I don't think that was too far-fetched. But then as they spoke more, he did tell him the truth and said that he, Ted Kaczynski, was suspected of being the Unabomber. And that was very difficult for my dad to process. And, you know, like I said, I think he was in shock and he... I was like, there's no possible way this man is who you're looking for. And as time went on and Max told him more of the details of the case, then my dad accepted it. And it was terrifying because Ted had been in his home. Ted had been around his family. And all these years living next to this person, it was definitely a moment for my father And he was willing to do whatever he needed to help Max. And the first thing that he did was he actually walked him up there to the cabin to show him exactly where Ted Kaczynski lived. And that is the first look that the FBI got at Ted Kaczynski because my dogs were making a bunch of ruckus outside and it forced Ted out of the cabin And my dad is standing there with FBI agent Max Nolan. Of course, he's in Wranglers and a button-down cowboy shirt. I mean, he looks the part, so he didn't look out of place. But my dad just yells like, hey, Ted, Butch here. Oh, hey, Butch, and went back into his cabin. That was the beginning of the end because that was, you know, the first time the FBI saw Ted. And shortly after that, He was arrested and my father actually recorded the terrain for the FBI with his little handheld video camera Hmm. because they were having such a hard time getting images through all this dense forest around Ted's home Mm -hmm. because they're trying to plan the arrest and like, where could he run to and where do they need to be? And so my dad went out there and recorded the road that went up to the cabin all around it. I mean, he truly, like at that point, he knew this man was a suspected serial killer, Mm. the longest-running domestic terrorist in United States history. He knew he had weapons, guns. He knew maybe a bomb. He didn't know. But he did it anyway because he couldn't have one more person hurt or killed by this person. I'm assuming your dad never said anything to you. Did he tell your stepmother when this is all going on? No. Wow. I know. The FBI asked him not to tell one person Hmm. about their suspicions, about what he was going to do for the FBI. It was in complete confidence. And I think that's why my dad was so secretive, even after the arrest. I mean, he shared little bits and pieces, but I think that's why he didn't sit down and like retell all the stories. And so that's why I ended up hearing him straight from the FBI. Who was there to witness the arrest? Was your dad at home or were you at home? So the sawmill was actually set up as kind of a base. And so there was a lot of FBI agents there. My father was there. Then there was a ton of kind of SWAT FBI agents that were like in full ghillie suits and, you know, running up the side of the mountain and getting into position I wasn't there to witness this, but, you know, my dad and then, of course, Max Noel told me kind of what that day looked like. 
they did everything they could Mm. to ensure a safe arrest of Ted Kaczynski. And they did. So shorthand the trial for me. There's probably a section of our audience who certainly wasn't born at this point and might not know the story very well. So what ends up happening with him? So the trial happens in Sacramento, California. That's where Hugh Scrutton was killed, one of his victims. And then also Gil Murray, which was his last victim in 1995. And so the the trial takes place in Sacramento. I found one detail very interesting. I believe it was the defense wanted to show the cabin, this little 10 by 12 cabin that the Unabomber lived in. And even I have pictures of the interior, just that there's soot, you know, all over the wall. There's a teeny tiny little window to really show what living this way and living in this isolation says about the murderer. Hmm. They were trying to show his mental illness. I mean, he was he was identified as a paranoid schizophrenic during the trial. Yeah. Of course, Ted did not agree with that. He and he wanted to represent himself sure. because he didn't want anybody to believe that he was a paranoid schizophrenic because of his if his mind wasn't sound, then were his ideas. And that's what he had put his whole life into, right? But of course, he doesn't end up defending himself. And he is found guilty of being the Unabomber and killing three, injuring 23 people over 17 years. And, you know, one of the most powerful things that I found in the trial were the victim impact statements. And I did include them in my book because I felt it was so important to include their voices in this. Mm -hmm. And those victim impact statements, I mean, they say it all. Not only the effect of, you know, maybe long-term disabilities because of this action, but time lost with family, a father not being there for all of his kids' birthdays and, you know, just really the the ripple effect of this violence. And it was a really heartbreaking but powerful part of this trial. So Ted did end up serving multiple life sentences and he went to the Supermax in Florence, Colorado Oof. until pretty recently he was transferred to Butner FMC in North Carolina. The judge felt like that punishment was very appropriate for this particular person. Did your dad have an interest in going to the trial or following the trial? Yes, my dad, uh, our whole family followed the trial. It's a strange thing to, for me especially, to have seen Ted in his own natural environment, you know, in the woods, in his clothes that are kind of rotting off and the holes in his hair, and then to see him behind flashes of light from everybody taking pictures and reporters, and he's in an orange jumpsuit, and his eyes are wide, and it was difficult to process, especially, you know, being as young as I was, a teenager, seeing that person in that environment. And I definitely found myself kind of struggling. Even my mom, she's like, I think you were kind of in shock about it as well because you kept saying things to the effect of like, well, if they do find he's guilty, you couldn't really process that this person was the Unabomber. 
You spoke to him, is that right, while he was in prison for the book? Yes. You know, I actually started the process for an in-person visit, but then COVID happened. Mm. I think it was probably just closure for me mm-hmm. to correspond with him. <laughs> was there a part of me that hoped that the Unabomber would apologize? I would have to say, yes, there is. Mm. I mean, that's not what I got and that's not what I expected. But, you know, there was still a part of me that kind of hoped for that. You know, because there's horrific things that I discovered. Of course, on a national level, I knew of his crimes, but he poisoned my dog lethally. What? Wait, what? When did that happen? Yeah, so while I was in high school, our dog got very sick And we took him to the vet. The vet determined that he was poisoned. Um, He ingested some type of poisoning. You know, we couldn't figure out what it was. There wasn't really anything we could do. And he suffered a pretty long, drawn-out death. And it was determined that he was poisoned with strychnine. We didn't have strychnine around the property. It was a mystery. And I did, you know, go through the... FBI files while I was doing my research for the book. And I found that one of the things that was documented was strychnine pellets. Mm. And so, of course, that hit me like, oh my gosh, that's what Wiley ingested. Then after that, I found a letter that Ted Kaczynski had written from prison. He was actually refuting some facts in a different book that was written by um, this man named Chris Waits that was talking about some deaths of his animals that he was attributing to Ted Kaczynski. And in the letter, Ted states that he didn't harm Chris's dogs. However, he did poison a dog that continuously snuck into his garden at night. And so between reading that letter and finding the FBI evidence of the strychnine oats, it was pretty apparent that he had killed my dog, which was horrible. And then there are things that I think you don't quite process because they're too traumatic when you're going through them, especially when you're a young person. There was a story of, you know, Ted pointing a gun at my stepmother and my little sister, who was only two at the time. It was kind of told in like hushes as a, as a teen after Ted's arrest. And then while we were filming the Netflix documentary, Unabomber in His Own Words, my stepmother was recounting a day in which she was in the woods with my little sister, felt something very ominous, and just like knew she needed to flee. And so she grabbed my little sister. They ran and got in the truck, took off. After the arrest, the FBI shared a journal entry, which are literally just like mead notebooks that he would write in every day. So Ted is staring at my stepmother and my little sister in the woods through the scope of his rifle. Mm. And he's going back between mother and daughter And he says, it would be easy to take the little bitch out, but then the big bitch would get away. Or if I shoot the big bitch, then the little bitch would be left on the hill. And so again, just knowing the level of danger we were in and what this person did to people across the nation and then what he did in our backyard. 
it was all just really difficult to process. And like, so like I said, when I was hoping for an apology and my response from, from Ted, it was for those reasons. But obviously that wasn't going to happen. Well, what happened? What did he say? So he initially said something to the effect of, you know, it's always good to hear from people that I've known in the past. I had asked him some questions about his beliefs and his ideals and such. And basically the response was to go read his book. Is that basically it? It was just self-promoting and that's it? (laughs) I mean, it was a little bit more than that, but there wasn't much to it. I think my initial letter was like eight pages and his was one page. And then the interesting thing was he wrote it on a piece of paper that he had basically just been like writing his thoughts on. And so in the book, I have a picture of the letter and then a picture of the back of the letter, just kind of showing the juxtaposition of this madman that we lived next door to for 25 years. Amazing. What do you think, when this is all said and done, is there a lesson learned from any of this? What's your big takeaway from this story? So I think there can be much gleaned from this entire story, from the whole narrative. I mean, what can we learn from Ted Kaczynski and the making of a murderer? What kind of created this person? And the reminder that every single person has a story, even a murderer. And I think that's important. It doesn't excuse the violence, doesn't excuse what happened. But I think as people, it's just important that we understand And I feel like we're always, you know, looking for the monster. We're always on the lookout for the monster, whether it's next door or, you know, in any circumstance. And these people are human beings and they don't present themselves most of the time as monsters. They may be a teacher or a father or, I mean, there's so many different, a babysitter, your next door neighbor. And as soon as I feel like we stop looking for the monster, will pick up on more of the signs. Mm. And it's taught me personally to better trust my own instincts and, you know, really, really listen when I have those feelings arise. Let me ask this one last question. Your dad knew that at some point you were likely to write a book or do something with this story. Is that right? Yeah, I always said I was going to write this book. What do you think his reaction would be to this book if he had lived long enough to read it? I think he would be really proud of it. I think he would be proud of really the research I put into it, Mm. not just telling our story, but it was so important for me as I wrote every word of this to represent the people that didn't have a voice in this well. I mean, Mm -hmm. from the victims to even the FBI agents who worked the case and to Ted's own brother, David. I mean, they were always in my mind as I was writing this. And I think he would be really proud of that and just, you know, trying to report on the entire story, not just our story. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. 
Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.